Oh, we got to wait on Leo to get to his chair. That's what we're waiting on. All right. That's fine. Go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, man. I know, right? Yeah, you got to sit closer if you're going to take that long. <laughs> All right. So, we're uh, starting something new. Uh, we're going to be in the next six weeks, which takes us all the way to December, uh, in the book of Galatians. I'm going to tell you why here in just a sec. So, everybody doing good? Everybody got refreshments? We're ready to go? We geared up? Okay, awesome. All right, good deal. So, we're going to talk about, over the next six weeks, starting today, about religion. Yay! Everybody's favorite topic, right? Yes! Everybody loves to talk about religion, don't we? It can be both comforting for a whole lot of people or controversial for a whole lot of people, right? On one hand, it's a source of, of hope and peace in the world. It focuses the efforts of a large group of people to accomplish a whole lot of good in, in the world. But on the other hand, it's a source of division. It's a starter of so many wars throughout history, right? For many around the world, it's really a key part of their lives and our lives, right? Nearly 8 in 10 around the world, 8 in 10 uh, people worldwide practice some form of religion. And there are hundreds, matter of fact, there's, there's over a thousand, well over a thousand if you get down to the nitty-gritty, of religions in the world. And nearly eight in ten choose to participate in some form of religion. Most of the religions promise either eternal rest or eternal reward or, or uh, oneness with the universe, and, and nearly all Nearly all, we'll find one that doesn't in a minute, but nearly all require some amount of effort or discipline following a set of rules or behaviors to attain that reward, all right? You can look through all the, thou the thousands that are there, the, uh, all the major ones, and every single one of them, with the exception of one, has this personal effort involved, this discipline that it takes to get it done. And the reason for that is that it's, at its core, religion is about man searching for God or searching for a way to be like God, and about crafting rules and rights, beliefs and behaviors to help facilitate that search. That's essentially what religion is, boiled down to its core. Now, many would place Christianity in that category, but if you think about it, is Christianity really, really one religion searching for the same God among the many others searching for the same God? That's a great question. We really should dive into that, and we're going to, starting this morning, that we unpack this. Because at first glance, the, the answer might seem like, of course it is. Of course Christianity is one religion that is doing that exact same thing, that has rules and rights and regulations that you have to follow that's trying to get you to this eternal reward. It sounds fairly obvious, but is it really? If you take a deeper look, and I think you'll find that, that true Christianity at its core is less about traditional religious systems, and more about a relationship. It's something that offers less than most religions, but it really, in turn, offers a whole lot more than mere religion. So to help unpack that a bit and to kind of make sense of it all, we're going to start this morning on a new series called Losing Religion, all right? So if you don't like religion, neither do I. We're going to talk about it together these next six weeks, uh, and we're going to travel through the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, which is why we're doing Galatians chapter 1 this morning, to help make sense of uh, what religion is and how we uh, abuse it and how it helps, uh, proclaims to help and proclaims to offer clarity, but often confuses, it often clouds our vision, it often messes us up and gets us off track of who God really is and who we are in relation to Him. 
So this week we're going to start at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. But before we do, uh, I want to make sure that we have some context. Because anytime you open your Bible up, there's a whole lot of stuff going on that you're probably not aware of, right? It's just like when you meet somebody for the first time, right? And you say, hey, how you doing? They say, hey, how you doing? And you might exchange some pleasantries. And you might find out where they're born or, or a little bit about them. But you really don't know them until you get the full context of who they are, where they've been, what their goals and dreams are, where they're going, right? So when you're reading anything in the Bible, it's important not just to say, oh, okay, let me start here in verse 1 and just read through these lines. Oh, okay, I got it. There's a whole lot of context going on around these things that you have to place it in so you don't miss something important. So what we have here in this letter, the reason why it was even written is that, that Paul, years prior to this letter, had been traveling through the Roman territory. He's going through all these uh, towns and provinces around the Roman Empire, and uh, he's walking along all these roads, and he's visiting all these people, and he goes through the, the, the territory known as Galatia, and he gets sick. All right? We don't say it doesn't know how sick, but he gets some sort of sick where he can't travel anymore. And so while he's in these, this territory, he finds these uh, people who are willing to take him into their, to his, uh, their home. And obviously, because Paul does this all the time, while he's there, he shares with them the gospel or the good news of Jesus. And many believed and many became followers. And when Paul got better, he moves on. All right? So we don't know how long he was there. It could have been a few weeks. We just don't know. So he gets, he gets better. He moves on. Sometime later, though, he receives a report from somebody who says, hey, you know those people you preached Jesus to? You know those people you gave the good news to? Well, there's another group that came in, uh, these Jewish Christians, and, and they've come in and they've convinced that many, uh, convinced a whole bunch of people there that while following Jesus is great, and that sounds good, that to be truly accepted by God, though, they needed to follow the law of Moses. They needed to be circumcised as a sign that they were truly God's people. They needed Jesus, but they needed Jesus plus something else. Now, when this group came in to, to pronounce this, uh, these added laws and added requirements, many believers in the area found that completely comforting. You would think it would be the opposite, but many of them said, oh, that's great. That's great, because what they had been in before was uh, temple rites. They had these big, giant temples to Roman gods and goddesses they participated in with the community. They would go to the temple daily, and they would worship, and they would sacrifice, and they would come home, and they would have little idols in their homes, and they perform these rites and ceremonies, and they would have this process they would go through that made them feel a part of the community and a part of the gods they were worshiping. It was very intimate. It was very personal, Right? And so whenever this other group of Jewish Christians came in and said, hey, you, the, Jesus is great, but if you, if you get circumcised, if you, if, you have to, if you follow this set of rules and regulations, if you do these dietary requirements, if you do all these things, then you're really doing it right. It was like, oh, that makes sense, because this is what we were doing before, just in a different way. And so they, they, many of them fell into that belief that, yes, this has to be the right way to do it. This, that, that makes total sense. Now, Paul hears this, and to say that he was upset would be a gross understatement. He was furious, and we'll get through the rest of this letter in the, pre, in the coming weeks to explain why he was more furious, but he was furious at the group that had come in and fooled them, and he was furious at the Galatians for buying it. For Paul, this was no light thing. This wasn't merely about worshiping God differently. This was exchanging truth for a lie. And for Paul and for us today is the difference between life and death. So, he writes them this letter to call them back from religion to the true gospel. And right here at the very beginning, we're going to throw the, the uh, verse up here in just a sec. Right at the very beginning, he restates what the gospel is to remind them from the very first sentence who and what 
they professed to believe. We're going to dive into that in just one sec. Our vision and mission statement here at the, at the church is, is that our community at the, and the communities around us are transformed by the power of the gospel. So while Paul is, is really restating this in the first five verses, it helps for us to understand and remind us what we believe and why we believe it. It's just as vital for us to hear what Paul has to say as it was for the churches of Galatia nearly 2,000 years ago. So let's look at Galatians 1, 1 through 5 on this first slide and read it uh, as I read it to you. Feel free to read along with me. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So what, what does Paul do here? In abbreviated form, Paul lays out exactly what the good news is, exactly what the gospel is. This isn't just a flowery introduction to a letter that helps uh, just to, to fill space. This is an important part of what Paul is writing to these believers in Galatia. And what he starts out with is, uh, obvious greeting that we'll get to explaining more in, in the following weeks, but he really drills down into what the gospel is starting in verse 4, in the end of verse 3 into verse 4. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Gave himself for our sins. Paul wanted to remind them of what the good news was about, of how central it was to their belief. And to understand why that's important, we have to remember back to last week. Anybody remember last week? I barely remember yesterday. But anybody remember last week, last Sunday? We talked about Adam and Eve. We talked about uh, the garden. We talked about separation when they chose for themselves to, uh, to, to take power for themselves, right? And that caused separation from God and from each other and how we seek to reclaim that through Christ. And so Paul is reminding them of that fact. The very beginning of humanity, created perfect and in harmony with, with creation and the Creator, humans chose instead to turn from God, to forsake His power, to seek to be their own authority instead. This power grab that the Bible uh, illustrates is called sin. That's what the Bible labels sin. It's, it's, it's what separates us from God, what separates us from His good creation. It's what separates us in our relationships with each other. Now, sin's complicated. All right, it's a complicated concept, and it really it's a it's a concept that many people seem to not like. Right, I understand why. To many, it seems outdated. It seems like this is something in the past that we don't have to deal with. It seems like it's uh, something this this way back in times whenever we had to guilt people into into obeying things. I think it's just a church word that people use to make people feel guilty about their choices. But no matter what our opinion of it is, no matter what our usage of it is, it's something that can't be avoided because it's something that we all have to deal with. In simplified terms, sin is simply the hurtful things we do to others and to God and the desire we all have to oppose anything we don't want to do. Now, if you have a two-year-old, you know exactly what that looks like, right? You ever had a two-year-old stand up to you and say, no, you know that that is just the innate desire to oppose anything that they or do not or want to do, right? So if you tell them, oh, let's go and, let's, uh, and, go and have supper, and they say, no, and stand there, that's that innate thing we all have inside of us. 
that says, I don't want to do it, and I'm not going to. Now, I know you're all nice, compliant, obedient people, and you never have that feeling at all. I know you're just ready to set. If I told you, let's go outside and, and do this out here, you'd all be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's go outside and do it, right? And if I said, oh, let's go down the street and do it. Oh, yes, yeah, go ahead. Let's go down. The, yeah, I'm sure you would all follow me wherever I said to go, right? Yeah, right. No, no, you wouldn't. I wouldn't either. I wouldn't even follow myself if I didn't have to, right? So it's it, this feeling that we have, this desire that we have not to do anything that we don't want to do. Sometimes it's as senseless as a child who pulls the hair or punches the stomach of another and then honestly confesses, I, I don't know why I did that. In some ways, sin is an absence rather than a presence. It's something that fails to listen. It's someone that walks past the needy. It's one, something that alienates rather than relates. Now, we can call it whatever we want, or we can try to avoid naming it at all, but in practice, it's unavoidable because it's in every single one of us. And we have to live with its consequences every single day. The broken relationships, the frustrations of a spouse, the distance physically and emotionally of a child that was once close, and most importantly, the unfulfilled desire to know and understand the God that made us. We all struggle with those things. There is not one that does not. Romans 3, and 23 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not simply a condemnation of humanity, but it's an admission of the reality that we all live in. That none of us can avoid it. We can rename it. We can, we can try to avoid it, but it's always there. It's always there. We like to oversimplify things and, and paint reality in black and white and say there are good people and there are bad people, right? We do it all the time. And, and that if, a, if a bad person changes and, and does enough good things, they can become a, a good person. Now, there are hundreds of religions that will sell you that line of thinking. And they'll give you a 5 or a 10 or a 20-step process that'll help you achieve that goal of going from being a bad person to being a good person. But the problem is our good may be great, but great isn't good enough to solve the problem. Even the best of people can die and spend an eternity in hell separated from God because it's not about good or bad, it's about lost and found. Here in verse 4 of Galatians and in Romans 3, 24, Paul says this. He says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here in verse 4 and again, Romans 3, 24, Paul throws out religion. Right there, that one line throws all religion out the door. He says, no, you can't earn your way to God. You can't search for God and find him. There's no 10, 20, 50-step process to make it happen. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Grace is unmerited favor. Justified means right standing with God. That means there's nothing you can do to obtain it. You are given it through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul clearly says religion isn't the answer. It's not about man searching for God. It's about receiving the best of news that through Christ Jesus, salvation is possible. We don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. It's free. Freely given. It's not about man searching for God. It's that God has found you. 
God wasn't content to let Adam and Eve mess things up for everybody. He didn't create us so we could wallow in guilt and shame, desperately looking for a way back home. In Christ, he stepped out of eternity and into this broken world. He proclaimed the good news that the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would bring us back is here and now. That the rescuer has come, that the king has arrived to set right our wrongs, to not simply show the way back, but to be the way back. I encourage you, I, I highly encourage you, that if you have any questions about any other religions, you think, man, this, these seem to make more sense. Look at them, and I will, I will promise you, every single one of them will say, here is the way back to God. Christianity is the only one who will say that Jesus is the way back to God. That's a subtle but important, super important distinction. Super important distinction. That means that God wasn't content to let it sit, that he is a rescuing God. His love wouldn't allow the stain of sin to be the tragic ending to our story. Jesus took on our sins on the cross. He died the death that we deserve, not simply to wipe the slate clean and, uh, and give us an opportunity to do better to earn our salvation, right? But through grace, through that unmerited favor, to freely give us salvation, to truly free us from the guilt of our past mistakes, and to set us in a life that is free, free, free. And God raised him from the dead three days later after the cross is proof that the price that Jesus paid was all that was needed. Let's go back to Galatians 1, 1 through 5 there, uh, Josh, and we're going to look back at verse 4 again. Who gave himself for our sins. He took it all on. To do what? To deliver us from this present evil age. Now, saying that Jesus came and, and, and wiped our slate clean sounds great, but can somebody be so changed that yesterday's mistakes aren't repeated today? That's an important claim the Bible gives, and we need to set it out, right? We can say, oh, yes, Jesus has, has redeemed us. He's bought us back. That sounds great. That means everything I've done before is, is clean, is great. He's given me this, this unmerited favor. He has saved me. Wonderful, great, wonderful. What about from now on? Will I still do the same things I was doing before and fall into that same pattern again and again and again? I know, if you're anything like me, that we've all felt that feeling that no matter how hard we try to do better today than we did yesterday, we still seem to fall into that same bad habit, right? It can feel like Groundhog Day. Everybody remember that movie? That's an old movie now. Man, that's old. Everybody remember that movie? I love that movie. Where, uh, where what, what's, the, what's the actor's name? Who's Bill Murray, right? Bill Murray played Groundhog, Groundhog Day. He was great. And no matter what he did, he could try to change it up. He could try to do anything different. He did several times. No matter what he did, the outcome always remained the same, right? Over and over and over again. He tried to change the situation, the circumstances by changing his behavior, and nothing ever really changed. It can feel like that in our lives, that where we try to do something different, and yet we still wind up going through the same motions no matter what. Paul continues his explanation of the gospel in verse 4 by saying that Jesus' act of grace on the cross did more than simply set us free from our past, but he delivers us from this vicious cycle of sin that perpetuates the anger, that perpetuates the hate, that perpetuates the selfish desire. The beauty and grace and, and just power of the gospel, which is why it's transformative, is that it doesn't just wipe the slate clean. It's that it breaks us free from those cycles. It liberates us from the things that slowly kill us. 
and it sets us under the one who brings healing and life. By Christ, we are set free from our past and empowered today to live a radically different future. Radically different. Through Him. By Him. Now, Paul puts a bow on it here in the end of verse 4. According to the will of our God and Father. Jesus, the God-man entering into history and dying on the cross, is what Paul is saying, is no accident. It wasn't a tragedy that Jesus, oh, he had to die. It's such a such, such sad story. No, it was part of a plan, a larger divine plan. From the minute that Adam and Eve made that fateful choice, God put, in that, plan, uh, put that plan in motion that would reverse the curse. He made a promise that a descendant would come to set right the wrong that they had caused. In Jesus, that promise was fulfilled. God's purpose for Good Friday was to bring about the deliverance promised. So for the believers in Galatia and us today to believe that Jesus' death was insufficient for salvation and it needed to be supplemented with rights and with rules was essentially saying the same thing that God didn't think things through. We just talked about in Psalm. He's got it all in his, under control, right? Paul says he's got a plan. He's got it all figured out from the get-go. So if we have to add something to what God had already fulfilled through Jesus, we're saying, uh, you took it far, you know, God. That, that was a great plan. Let me take it the rest of the way. That's like looking at a carpenter's finished work and saying, well, that looks good, but let me just do this little bit of tweak here and there and make it look more like I want it to look, and it's going to be better. Any good carpenter would say, stop it, right? Leave my work alone. It looks good the way it is, right? Don't mess that up. God's plan was fulfilled. His purpose was fulfilled in Christ. Nothing else needed. Whether implicitly implied or explicitly stated, what religion and legalism does is question the meaning of the death of Jesus. Is he the sacrificial lamb to take away our sins or is he not? Does he liberate us from the vicious cycle of sin or does he not? Is his death really the means for dealing with a network of broken relationships and the recurring cycle of human behavior which has plagued us from the beginning or not? That's it. That's the questions we have to push through and answer. And that's the question that Paul answers right in the very beginning. And he's going to spend the, the rest of this letter, and we're going to analyze bits and pieces, through, not the whole thing, but bits and pieces uh, of this letter, those same questions from the variety of angles where he's going to say, yes, that Jesus is all you need, period. That the cross and the resurrection are it, period. That Jesus wasn't a God, he was the God, period. That his death was all you need, period. Nothing else. We want to fall back into cycles and say, oh, I just want to do better. Oh, why? If, if I'm doing so great, why is my life going bad? Because we think it all depends on us. It doesn't depend on us. Thank you, Jesus. It doesn't depend on us. We can never do good enough. Only the perfect God is good enough. And he did it all. He did it all right there on the cross. Legalized Christianity Cults that call themselves Christians and every other religion in the whole wide world will try and sell you a bill of goods that while Jesus is great, he's simply part of the answer. And you need to continue to try in your own power to truly be saved. 
Paul's position, the position of the early church, and our church's belief is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Jesus plus anything equals a lie. Remember, if you don't remember anything about this sermon, remember this. Jesus plus anything equals a lie. Don't take my word for it. Read it. Because whenever someone comes knocking at your door and wants to sell you something different, you can point back and say, Jesus plus anything is a lie, period. And save yourself, your family, and everybody you know a whole bunch of trouble. Jesus plus nothing equals life. Freedom, joy. Mm. Jesus plus nothing. If you're a seeker here this morning, Lord, I pray we continue to have him come in. If, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, this is the perfect place to be. And even if you don't believe who Jesus is, <laughs> this is the perfect place to be. It's right where I want you to be. Thank you for spending your morning with us. We stated it and restated it, and I'll say it every week, that our, our mission, our vision statement here at the church is to see people transformed by the power of the good news of Jesus, to see them live with joy in every facet of their lives that comes from knowing that, that he has saved you, that God has found you, and that you don't have to go seeking after him. He's already got you. That love has captured you, and that you live in that love radically different today than you did yesterday, that it transformed everything from the inside out, that we don't have to, to seek to do good so that we can be accepted, but that we can do good because we've already been accepted. That's our heartbeat. That's our passion. That's the good news. So if you're here this morning and you would like to take your first step on that journey to a real, simple faith, I want to give you that opportunity in just a, just a minute. If you're not quite sure, I say this every week, and I want to continue to say it. If you're not quite sure where you're at, keep pressing in, keep coming, keep hanging out with us. If you know somebody who doesn't know what they believe, but you can convince them to come along with you here, drag them along. This isn't about churched and unchurched, right? Like I said, it's about lost and found. Bring them on. Let's have people who have doubts to come in and, and, and question and ask of us what we believe just so we can show them what following Jesus and knowing him really looks like. Now, for believers, do we have a clear understanding of the gospel? All right? Last week, I gave you a little assignment about being, being the man or woman God has called you to be. This week, do you even know what? We, we've got to refresh our memory this morning uh, of what the gospel is. Do you really know what it is? Can you tell somebody about it? If so, how are we living it out? Are we falling into that trap that we have to earn God's favor? Are we living a life with a certain hope, knowing, that we're, knowing exactly where we stand in God's love and mercy for us? And are we as zealous as Paul when we see people who are lost, who see people who are being deceived, and we're willing to step in and do whatever it takes to tell the story of the God that has rescued us? Are we willing to do that? We're willing to live a life transformed from the inside out, radically different. Let's pray this morning.